Let's go to Luke chapter 2. You know, like a football game, when something big happens, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. Let's, uh, let's do that. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time had come for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them, as we've heard so many times, in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you gospel good news that will cause great joy for all people. Because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and singing, Glory to God in the highest on heaven and earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which just as they had been told. You may be seated. So yeah, I know you guys are still watching Christmas specials. Um, I think we all know what the best one is. It's the one I've already mentioned, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, You know, think about how it starts. It starts with Charlie Brown saying (laughs) this profound thing. He says, I think there must be something wrong with me. I just don't understand Christmas. I might be getting presents, sending Christmas cards, and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Then, of course, Linus scolds him. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. And then Linus continues, maybe Lucy is right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you are the Charlie Brownest. And I just feel bad for Charlie Brown. But our world needs Charlie Browns. Uh, People that have no guile, who just bluntly state the way things are with no agenda. Do you know anyone like that today? And I think he's right. I think Christmas, which has become a direct reflection of our culture, has become a problem. I mean, today it's filled with the things that are supposed to make human beings happy, 
uh, from the decoration, the commercialization, all the consumption, bigger, better, brighter, louder. But yet in the end, I think it's left a lot of honest people like Charlie Brown saying, I'm, I'm still not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. And Charles Schultz is the one who, who wrote all of this, and I think he brilliant, brilliantly plows through all the layers that Christmas has become and what Christmas is supposed to mean and how it's supposed to make us feel. I mean, I love his character, Lucy. I mean, Lucy is the epitome of our culture today, at least I think so. I mean, she's striving to pull off the best Christmas pageant ever, and she's the boss who's bossing everybody around because she knows everything about everything. And anyone who doesn't see the things the way she sees things is just dumb. And then she gives Charlie Brown uh, the task of picking out the most spectacular Christmas tree ever. And then her idea of what that tree is, is this aluminum tree with bright lights and this painful, loud pink color. I mean, Charlie Brown doesn't stand a chance in this whole thing. And then think about the tree that Charlie Brown does pick out. I mean, this is just classic. I have a PowerPoint of it. I mean, and, and the best thing about this is, is what he says. <laughs> he picks it and he says, well, this one seems like it needed a home. And uh, Linus then says to that, I don't know, Charlie Brown. Remember what Lucy said? And that, that moment, Charlie Brown gets so discouraged. But I think Charlie Brown is instinctively right. I, mean, I think somehow that poor humiliating tree captures a lot more of the true meaning of Christmas, at least with anything that we've done, Chris, done with Christmas in our Western world. I mean, we've Westernized it, decorated it with Western materialism and Western consumption. And do we even know what Christmas means anymore? In fact, this, the text that I just read, I, I, I feel like, too, this is uh, one of those texts, too, where we've projected so much of our, our, our Western understanding upon it. It might be one of the most misunderstood texts in the Bible, Luke chapter 2. I think one thing that would be very helpful right out the outside is first to, to recognize uh, that the Bible is a Middle Eastern book. It's written by Middle Eastern authors to primarily Middle Eastern people, and so to understand it, we have to get into that world. We have to take our Western lenses off. And, and so Luke, he, he starts this whole thing uh, by giving us the, the historical context of Christmas. It's the year when the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, uh, did that whole census thing. And because of that, everybody had to return to the city of their birth. I mean, this is what Rome does. This is what empire does. Uh, empires like to look at themselves. They like to take inventory of how strong and mighty they are. They want to know how many people are going to be on the rolls uh, of people who will be taxed. And I don't know if you know this, but, but Rome is actually uh, the first to make use of this word gospel or good news. It, it's literally what Rome proclaimed to the entire world. It was the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. That's what they promised the world, this gospel of peace. And I think it's still the same thing that the West promises the world. It's the promise of Western materialism and Western prosperity, Western ingenuity and technology, Western comforts, pleasure, 
Western celebrity and entertainment. And I think our world is actually growing pretty tired of the West and all its promises. Because underneath all the glitz and the glitter, all the perks and, and the comforts of the West is really a heart of individualism. And this individualism leads to narcissism. This narcissism, where life is all about me, leads to Darwinism. Darwinism is survival of the fittest, the strongest, the smartest, the prettiest, the richest. Um, it's a world that caters only to the winners. And Darwinism, in the end, ends up with nihilism. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I mean, we know this world, right? Rome is our world. Our world is Rome. And here's the deal. If you don't do it Rome's way, Rome will cancel you. Uh, Rome will crucify you. Rome crucified thousands of people. So when Rome calls for a census, you better believe that you are going to do what you're told, even if you're nine months pregnant. And when you look at verse 4 of our text, that they had to travel all the way from Nazareth, which is in the north, to Bethlehem in the south. You don't know this, but I was just in Israel doing that exact route even by bus. It's 90 miles. They did it by foot. And they estimate that ancients could walk about 20 miles a day. So we're talking about anywhere between four and five days of just walking. And please don't put Mary on a donkey. There's zero mention anywhere in any gospel of Mary and Joseph having a donkey. 90% of the population traveled by foot. And Mary and Joseph are not people of means. We know that from the text. They walked. But what I like to look at, because we can, we can get above this story and see. So while uh, Caesar is, is doing his census for reasons of hubris and pride, God is way above that, and he's playing chess. I mean, the Caesars of the world are nothing but pawns in God's hands. And God planned it for Messiah not to be born in Nazareth, but to be born in Bethlehem. Listen to Micah 5, verse 2. This is a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus is born. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Wow, when I read that verse, I think Charlie Brown got it right. His tree fits what Christmas is. Bethlehem is too little. It's too poor, too humble to be considered among the clans of Judah. Mary and Joseph are two poor teenagers just trying to survive a Roman world. See, I don't know if you know this, but... but like Charlie Brown, God's heart is so drawn to the small and the weak. His heart is drawn to the humble. It's drawn to the poor. It's drawn to those who are in pain. In fact, if you know the biblical story at all, and this is from cover to cover, whenever God wants to do something big in the world, it's like he always looks for the smallest, the least, the most barren by which he will do 
his big thing. And now when he picks the place to be born into the world, (laughs) he looks for the smallest, the least, the most humble. Because it's so God. It's so, so God's heart. And look now how this this king is going to enter the world stage. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, while they were there, this is Mary and Joseph, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let's just start with Joseph. First of all, Joseph is no stranger to Bethlehem. I mean, he's returning to his hometown. He's a Bethlehemite. Um, these are his people. This is his family. So um, when it says that there was no room for him, uh, sometimes I think uh, that this stranger shows up and, and there's no place to live. Listen, uh, when you go home to your hometown, uh, Joseph, all he needs to do is say, my dad is Healy and, and my grandpa is, is Matthew. And I mean, instantly, he will have all kinds of families just begging, please stay with us. And then when you also remember that Bethlehem actually has a nickname, it's called David's City. Uh, This makes Joseph a royal in this town. He's of David's lineage. So every family would be opening their doors to someone like Joseph. So when it says there's no room for them, in fact, our text used to say no room for them in the inn, Uh, You can already tell the NIV is making some corrections to our Western projections upon this text, as if there would be a Holiday Inn or a Motel 6 in this part of the world at this time. Uh, But the earliest traditions surrounding the birth of Jesus, which go all the way back to the second century, all say that Jesus was born into a cave. And this actually fits. Because houses in the ancient world, uh, first of all, would store everything a family owned, including the animals. So every night, you'd, you'd bunch your, your animals into your house. It would usually be a courtyard. Um, but that's why they'd build these houses like this one on top of a cave, because this would work just perfectly. Your house could be up there. The animals could go in the cave below. In fact, when it got cold at night, uh, the warmth of the animals would rise up and, and, and make your house a little bit warmer. Uh, And so you can see then how this fits. I've been in these caves because these caves are all over the land. And I'll just show you one that I sat in. It's actually uh, within a few miles of Bethlehem. Now what you can't see in that sooty cave, literally animal dung everywhere. It's just how bad it smelled. Horrible. And I'll say to sit there and, 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 and to ponder, to think that the one with all the power, the, the power to, to literally speak the galaxies into existence, the, the Psalms say um, that God knows every star that he created by name. That God, the creator of the universe, came to this. 
And then there's a PowerPoint of a manger. You oftentimes see these, these mangers uh, in these caves. Um, it's what they put the food and the water for the animals. God placed himself in this. God gave it all up. As Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself. He became nothing. He became poor. He took the form of a slave. He was born into the lowliest conditions possible. And if this isn't enough, just keep taking in this story. Look, look, look at who he came to. He came to shepherds. Now, we, we like to romanticize these guys, and in some ways the Bible does. Um, the Bible romanticizes shepherds. David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all shepherds. In fact, God himself in Psalm 23 is described as the good shepherd. However, by the time of Jesus, shepherds were considered the lowlifes. It wasn't just because they were the poorest of the poor, they live their lives as, as, as outsiders. Their testimony was actually inadmissible in court. They didn't count. And on top of all this, shepherds were considered unclean. So to be a shepherd was a shameful profession. So look at the whole picture that, that we see in Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph, two poor teenagers, but they too are also more than poor. I mean, all you have to do is just think this out a little bit with Mary. I mean, this, this single girl in her young teens becoming pregnant, and then especially in a small town that is deeply religious, there'd be tons of shame associated with an illegitimate pregnancy. I mean, they have words for this, like moms are... And then the shepherds, I mean, there's a consistent thread running through this story. Jesus isn't just born into poor. He is born into shame. To people in shame. He's born for people living in shame. And none of this is coincidental. This is how God planned it to be. And then when you go further into Jesus' life and, and you see how often his ministry is moving towards people in shame, um, oftentimes it was shame that was put on them uh, due to their deformities or their diseases or their social uh, condition or an unclean profession that they participated in. I mean, Jesus, so much of his life is moving towards people in shame. I mean, we have to see the lengths at which the God of the universe is just immersing himself in shame. It's in his birth, it's in his life, and then when we get to his death, he died the most shameful death imaginable because the torture of a crucifixion, it was the shame of it. It wasn't just the, the, the nails in your hands and feet, but they took every stitch of clothing off of you. You were completely naked, and you were at eye level of the people who were passing by. 
It was excruciating shameful. Boy, did these low-life shepherds get a show that night. And it's not even just what they saw, but it's what they heard. I mean, look at verses 9 through 14. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And he is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The angel, and then the angels both say the same thing. I, we, bring you gospel. Good news. What's gospel? Well, to those in this day, their Bible is the Old Testament, and gospel, good news, is Isaiah 52, verse 7. Look at what the prophet Isaiah says. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring gospel, who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That is gospel. In the most simplest form, it's that our God reigns. So wherever God reigns, wherever God rules, there's peace. Do you know peace? That might be one of the most important questions I could ask right now. And, and, and when we talk the word peace, I, I, I want to get it in our minds, the kind of peace that we're talking about, because we're not just talking about the sentimental peace that Christmas likes to portray all the time, this, this kind of goodwill towards men. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've been learning in, in, in this Christmas series is that our English word for peace, is, it's hollow compared to its Hebrew counterpart, which is shalom. And shalom means far more than we just all kind of get along. In fact, shalom is the word more than any other word that describes the world that God made, the good world that he created. It, it's a world that exists in this Wonderful, holistic harmony. And it begins with, with the, the harmony that Adam and Eve uh, have with their own self. There's no self-hatred. There's no self-condemnation. They're at peace. They're restful. They're, they're, they're living loved because they know love. They know the love of God. It's a world where they know harmony with each other. There's no conflict, even though the woman is described as an Edzer Kenedgo. In other words, she's a yin to his yang. But that's also all part of the flourishing, the harmony of God's good world. They're in perfect harmony with the whole creation, and all creation is in perfect harmony 
with itself. I think this is best summed up in Isaiah 11 where it says, the wolf lies down with the lamb and the lion eats grass like the ox. And the young child puts his hand in, in the nest of a cobra and is not harmed. Can you imagine such a world? And see, all of this harmony then, it flows out of the harmony that they have with God himself because every day God comes out looking for them and they have their stroll about the garden with the one that fills their souls with ecstatic joy and pleasure. This is shalom. And this is what the world lost. This is what we lost when Adam and Eve rejected God, when they pushed God out. Not only did the world fall back into chaos, but it says Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, the garden that they were made. In fact, this word for banish uh, is the Hebrew word for divorce. That's what happened. A great divorce took place. And it's not just a divorce between heaven and earth, a divorce between God's space and our space, but it's literally a divorce between God and humanity. And so that walking with God in the cool of the day that they did in the garden was replaced with enmity. And see, this is one of the things that so many people uh, don't, don't want to look at and they don't want to accept, um, but, it's, but it's all over our Bibles, especially in our New Testament, to talk about what's wrong with ourselves, what's wrong with our world. And it's this, that ever since the banishment from the garden is that we have been at war with God. We don't want to accept passages like Romans 8, verse 7, where it says, the mind governed by the flesh, and the flesh is not your physicality, the flesh is your selfish self, your selfish you. The mind governed by the selfish self is hostile to God. It does not submit to God or to God's ways or to God's instruction, nor can it do so. And so, in other words, in, in, um, in our natural post-garden state, we want God's job. We want to be in control. We want life on our terms. We're like Lucy. We, we want to think that we're right about everything. And see, until you, you see this or know this about your own heart, that, that your heart is, is instinctively hostile towards God. It's mad at God. It's at war with him. You don't really understand your heart. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, I think said it so well. Uh, someone once asked him, why don't you believe in God? And I think his answer to this is very profound. He said, the reason why I don't believe in God is I don't want someone to tell me how to live. See, I think this sums up the enmity. We don't want someone to tell us how to live, how things are. We don't want someone to tell us who we are and, and what's wrong with us. And this is why so much of our world right now just insists, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, and everything is okay, and God is perfectly okay with all of our okay. And that's not what God says. God actually says quite the contrary. He says we're not okay, and our world is not okay, and God is not okay with our not okay world. Did that make sense? But I want us, in light of all this, to see what Christmas is. 
Yes, it's the good news. It's the gospel of God coming to earth to unleash God's reign, his rule, to make it all right, to restore the shalom, to quote Jesus, behold, I'm making everything new. But at the heart of this is reconciliation. Christmas is God coming to the world to make peace. It's God coming to us to make peace. It's God undoing the great divorce. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 uh, through 21. It talks about how God through Christ is reconciling all things to himself. Or look at this text from Colossians 1 starting uh, with verse 19. It says, for God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's in Christ. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Just stop and think about that. God is reconciling all things. And how is he doing it? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You were once alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy. (laughs) He's going to present us holy in his sight without blemish and free from all accusation. And see, I'll tell you what this means. There's a lot of implications to texts like this. It means that the main problem with our heart is not ignorance, where the remedy is enlightenment. Our problem is that we are at enmity with God, and we need to be reconciled. And a Christian is, is, is simply someone who has peace with God. Read Romans 5. Do you know this peace? This peace from all striving, this this peace from having to perform it just perfectly, this peace from always having to prove yourself to, to yourself and to everybody else. You know how we get this peace? It's what the angels say to the shepherds in verse 10 Do not be afraid, but behold. Do not be afraid, but behold. Now, this is stunning because whenever God shows up throughout the biblical story, people are afraid. Just like last week, Isaiah, all he can do in the presence of God is say, I'm ruined and my people are ruined. Or Moses, when he's brought into the presence of God, there's utter terror. He covers his face. Or John in Revelation 1, he just falls down as if he's dead. I mean, these stories are are just uh, from cover to cover in our text. And, And why is this? Well, this goes all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned and God came looking for them, they were afraid. They were afraid. They were hiding. They were afraid. And why were they afraid? Because they felt their nakedness and they hid. And now we're right back in the shame thing. And I was thinking about this. I... um, 
I've lived much of my adult life in three different contexts. I lived in Indianapolis, Chicago, and Grand Rapids. I've worked with hundreds, thousands of students. And now since Crossroads 2, you can add adults to this. And I find it so interesting how so many people today feel such a sense of shame and defilement. And I'm talking not just about religious people, but also irreligious people. And, and, and this is at a time when, we, when our world has come of age, when, when we've grown out of just believing such things as a holy God or heaven and hell or, or concepts of sin. We live in a time where people are free to, to create their own idea of God if they even believe in God or they can create even their own morality. They can even create their own identity today. And yet in light of all this, so many people still feel like something's seriously wrong with them, like they're always failing the exam and that if people found out who they truly are, if people truly found out who they truly are, they wouldn't be valued, liked, or accepted. And so they spend their whole lives playing the game of hiding and covering up. But listen to the words of the angel. Do not be afraid. And why not? Because the gospel, today in David's city, a savior is born to you, the Messiah, the Lord. (laughs) We have to get this in our minds that the promised Messiah did not come to deal with Romans, with Caesar, or oppressive politics. It's so much more than that. He comes to deal with our shame, to deal with the great divorce, to reconcile us to himself. As the New Testament says, all of this is from God who is reconciling us to himself through Christ. And our text says the promised Messiah is none other than who? The Lord. And if this were in Hebrew, it would be Yahweh. And who's Yahweh? Yahweh is the all-powerful creator of the world who desires this intensely personal relationship with us. And so this baby born in a manger is Yahweh himself who's come to the world to make it all right, to deal with our fig leaves, the shame, to make peace, to replace all the hostility, the enmity, the separation with reconciliation. And how will he do it? Behold the baby in a manger. Because that baby, lying in a manger, will become a man hanging on a cross. And see, that meek, humble tree, it's too shameful for Lucy. But Charlie Brown got it right. It's the cross where Yahweh will be stripped of every ounce of glory, where he will lose all his peace, where where he will be entirely cut off, where he will become this object of shame. 
And I dare you to ask why. Because he came to the world to exchange all of our shame for all of his glory, all of our hostility, for all of his peace. On the cross, Jesus is cut off from God so that we could be brought back into God. As Paul says, he who knew no sin, Christ, he became our sin so we could become his righteousness. And this is why the angels can say, do not be afraid, but behold him. Behold this God. And I love how our text ends with, and Mary pondered and treasured these things in her heart. We just need to ponder these realities. We need to think them into the deep recesses of our heart. Yahweh lying in a manger. Yahweh hanging on a cross. He came to the world to make peace, to reconcile us to himself. And as we behold these things, as we ponder them, as we drink them in, we can't help but treasure them. And when this happens, we are set free. We see that this whole thing, our whole lives, it's not about us. It's not about our striving, our proving, our need to be in charge, to have life our way or just the way we want it. Why? Because we have peace with God. Peace. The peace that we heard from Grant and Rachel, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that I saw in Rick Siner the night before he died. Jesus said, peace, peace. There is no peace in this world. But he came as peace to be peace, to make peace. And God somehow through all the layers of the craziness of this season. God, may we get to the true, the true meaning that you came to this world to make peace with us because you love us. And God, let that so fill our hearts that we could be people of peace in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen.